Okay, I'm here with Celine Rosenthal. I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Yes, that I do. Yes. The art to which you are giving your life is directing? Yes. Good. I, I only ask one question. Can you recall and can you tell me the very first moment in your life when plays, stories, telling other people what to do, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, um, attracted you, drew you, seemed um, interesting. Acting drew me, well, performance in theater drew me before I even knew what being a director really was. Okay, so it, hold on for a second. So if <laughs> acting was where you started, it was. then I want to know when the very first time acting seemed interesting to you did you <laughs> did you dance on the table did they do you know oh I, I mean? did all over the place <laughs> I would um I was always a kid that really loved music uh-huh. and when I was two or three I remember my uncle got us the soundtrack for Phantom of the Opera <gasps> and we listened to it on a car ride and my father narrated his own version of what he thought the story was and I just thought it was amazing and then we went to go see it. So I had seen, at a very young age, uh, Cats and Phantom, and I adored it. I learned every single word to every single song, whether or not I fully understood what it meant. Right. And then uh, my childhood was during the era of the, the great Disney musicals, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And so I used to make my little brother act out <laughs> all of the soundtracks to that with me, complete with uh, choreography (laughs) and harmonies. I was very bossy. (laughs) Well, and it occurs to me, as I'm sure it is occurring to you, that while it looked like acting, it was already directing. It was already (laughs) directing, I just didn't have a word for it. Because the thing was that I never, I've never liked performing. I've always liked the process of talking about the the piece and I love always loved rehearsing but I never liked being on stage I always got really nervous and I would perform but it wasn't something that I enjoyed so much as something that I forced myself to do what an interesting dilemma for you that, yeah yeah that clearly you are drawn to this thing and as I imagine for most kids maybe for most people the first thing you you can imagine doing, it's the only thing you see, really, is the <laughs> actors, right? Right. <laughs> Most kids don't, don't hear about director or producer. They hear about actor. Right. Right. And so you, it's really, it's kind of a shame in a way. <laughs> I mean, well, no, it, it's ironic, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, that you got drawn into acting because it was the entree you could see. Yes. Even though it was not what you really wanted right right well and I always I always loved to sing and I was always a musician so I always liked that part of trumpet was my primary instrument Mm -hmm. and I sing I was a trained vocalist for a long time um I guess I the training doesn't go away I'm still a trained vocalist but (laughs) right (laughs) right right. but that was always something that I loved to do but I don't know that I I always got so much agita when we I loved rehearsing and I loved being in rehearsal and I loved um, playing with my fellow actors and singers and musicians but when it came to actually putting on the performance I really did not care for it (laughs) okay so how did you make the switch how did you find it how what happened kind of by accident Um, I had started after college I moved to Mumbai and I started a theater program for kids and then when I had come back to the States 
um, my producing partner and I, my future producing partner and I, had started working together producing our own plays, just because we were organized and driven and we could do it, so Do you mean our own plays as in you wrote them or you found them and used them? One of the... One of them was one that the company had come up with together, and that was a more of a devised piece. And then uh, when I came into the picture to help with fundraising, it was a play called Turn of the Screw. And so we, my producing partner, Melissa Pinsley, and I found that we worked together very well. And we started producing in that way. So published works that we would option and then right. produce. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a benefit for a school that catered to autistic children. And our director um, begged out at the last minute, and it was like, well, you're kind of bossy. (laughs) 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 I say glibly. Um, And so that was the first thing that I really directed, and I liked it. I liked thinking about the lights and the sounds and the full picture, and I've always liked analyzing text. That was my favorite part of my acting training was my script analysis class. And, you know, but I kind of, like, tucked it away. I was like, oh, I think I kind of like directing. And I directed a couple of other things loosely. And at that time, my producing partner and I were producing on Broadway. So we were very busy with that. And there were two incidences that happened fairly close together. I was working on Seminar, the Broadway play. Mm -hmm. And we were having, I was having lunch with the, the team. And I was chatting um, with Al- actually Alan Rickman, yeah, and we were, was great. He was a great guy, and we he were was talking. great. It was great. Oh my god, you saw it? I did. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Are you kidding? <laughs> that's my favorite kind of play. Really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, I produced on it. <laughs> yes, I'm happy to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was at the time he had just directed uh, Rachel Corey, mm-hmm. and so he was telling me about his experience directing, and we were just loosely talking. He was asking about my entree into theater and what I was interested in and what do you really want to do and he brought up you know if you th- the way that you think you should be a director I kind of went oh well if Alan Rickman is telling me to do something <laughs> absolutely I should do something and around about the same time I was on the stage management team for Doug Hughes's production of Poor Behavior uh, that we had done at TCG mm-hmm. and watching him do what he does in the room was a revelation as well and he at the time was the resident artist at the new school for drama that has an MFA program and he had said oh you know if you want to direct you should go to grad school you should go to this program and so I applied and um, that's where I went to grad school and that kind of cemented it okay so um, how did you wind up here at the Oslo yeah so I was awarded a directing fellowship. I assisted Molly Smith on The Originalist and Frank Galati on Little Foxes. Wow. It was a wonderful experience. And then, actually, Greg had offered me a position directing, and I thought I was going to go back to New York and then come back, but before I ended up finishing up my fellowship, uh, Michael Donald Edwards offered me a position as the artistic associate. So, uh, the last time I talked to you was 2018. Yes. And quite a lot has happened for you here since then. Yeah. So, you wanted to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about Lifespan? Sounds fantastic. Okay, good. My goodness. So, since last we spoke, I have now been made the Associate Artistic Director. Which is this whole 
huge, wonderful new world that I've gotten to participate in. I've had these wonderful opportunities to have Michael be my mentor and to have Linda DeGabriel teach me more about the business of producing in the regional theater. I've had the opportunity to help with the casting of the past two seasons and to be really integrally involved. It's been such a blessing. So that's thrilling. Uh, and I've also directed a couple of plays since then. Yes, I know. Which has been really exciting as well. Um, I had I've sort of been mixing my love for classical theater with my love for new work. So here, I did what we'll call a radical feminist adaptation of <laughs> of The Tempest uh-huh. that oh, the God. students brought around. I wanted around. to talk to you about that. <laughs> Thank I you. loved it. Oh, good. I loved it. And The Tempest is my favorite Shakespeare play. Oh, that makes me so happy that I didn't ruin it for you. Oh, no, 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 I loved it. Oh, I thought good. it was wonderful. And I wanted to talk to you then and didn't get to. So yes. I'm glad to be able to tell you that now. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, it was a passion project of mine because, you know, I'm consistently thinking about the way that female characters are used within theater and then it was a double blessing to sort of get to think about with that educational tour, how those female characters are helping to sculpt the minds of the young audiences that they're being exposed to. I think it's so important, and I think about my own youth getting to go and see pieces of theater and how profoundly impacted I was by the characters that I saw. So I took that responsibility um, very seriously, and I was really proud of my team that came together to make that happen. So that was wonderful. Yes. Um, and then I had also directed at the, the Studio Theater, um, about an hour and a half from here in the Villages, a production of A Doll's House. Really? Oh, yes. So I was, uh, I was really having my way with oh the feminist God. icons, yes, 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 yes. with my, my female Prospero yes, <laughs> and Nora, who was just like, yes, women power. Um, and it was also, I had a lot of fun with that. I had a lot of fun taking a play that I had always thought of as something that was Ibsen and very serious and very dry and realizing to myself that it's it's very much comedy. It's very funny. It's funny and it's witty and it's cheeky mm-hmm. in ways that yes, I didn't yes, yes, think yes, yes, that yes, it I would see it. be. I can see it, right. Such a delight to be able to explore that with those actors. And I think that it was a really good lesson in comedy to realize that everything is honestly funny until it's not. You know? Yeah. And when you are dealing with a drama, that it has more significance if you are connecting with the characters and if you're laughing with them up until you sort of see the tragedy that's about to happen. And the same thing with your, when you're dealing with a straight-up comedy, that you really only get to have those full belly laughs if you connect with the characters on a human level and if you take them very seriously. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Um, that there is no comedy without tragedy, you want tragedy without comedy. Yeah, I mean, that little double um, theater mask symbol that yes, we have yep, with yep, the comedy yep, and the tragedy yep, yep, yep. all sort of in one, it's so true. And so that was wonderful. I got to start thinking about the ways that, that stories land with an audience and the way that all of our individual perspectives affect the way that we perceive truth. Yes has really been informative stepping into the process for a lifespan of a fact. Okay, so I'm... Did you like my segue? I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I don't know anything about it. Oh, great. Yes, so tell me. So this is a play that's based on a book 
that's based on the editing process of an essay that's based on a real-life event. My goodness. So many layers. Right. And at its core, the, the real-life event that it's based on is a, a boy named Levi Presley jumped off of the Stratosphere Hotel observation deck to his death. Mm. Um, oh, I forgot the year now. Um, and it profoundly affected his community. And the writer, John Degada, decided to write a piece, an essay, about that event. And this essay is sort of asking the, the ultimate question of what goes through somebody's mind in the moment before they do that? Why, do you, why does somebody do that? Right. Can we ever know? And then what ended up happening is John Degada writes this beautiful essay, and he is a writer and a scholar who considers an essay to be a nonfiction form of literature, but not journalism. Yes. So someplace sort of in between. Mm -hmm. And the experience was that when this article had to be fact-checked in order to be... Um, in order to be published by a magazine, he encountered the fact checker, Jim Fingal, who started to break apart his essay and look at each individual fact. And he sort of lighted upon just how many things uh, John had changed in, uh, in the service of the art of the piece. And it brings to the forefront a really interesting question which is when is when is that okay to do? What is the difference between art and journalism? Um, how do we determine what is fact and what is fiction? Oh God, it's so timely. It's so <laughs> timely. It's so timely. And so that was they made a book out of this whole process. It's really interesting to take a look at where they published the essay in and of itself, right? And then all around the essay on the page, they have the email correspondence, which is John and Jim fact-checking the article. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing. So that, that book was published right? Um, and did incredibly well. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating and ride. And what is it called? It's called The Lifespan of a Fact. Uh-huh. Okay. Of so course. that's where right. it came from. Lifespan of a fact. Yes, it's called The Lifespan of a Fact. And yeah. then what ended up happening is these playwrights came together and decided to interpret this very interesting and unique book that they had that John and Jim had written into a play and they added the extra character of the editor so now in our play we have Jim the fact checker John the writer and Emily who is the editor of a Harper's Bazaar like magazine who has to decide after she finds out that there are these factual inconsistencies within this piece right. whether or not to publish it yes. and in what context to publish it into her audience. Yeah. And what I love about the conversation that it's having is that I think, especially now, whenever we talk about facts um, versus, say, fiction, I think that we immediately think of fake news we yep. think of the way that the internet and social media has affected the way that information gets to our populace. And I think that it, in a lot of the plays that I've been reading that tackle this um, topic, it gets very political very quick. And I think that that has a tendency to polarize the conversation well, and it yeah. keeps people to stop listening. 
And I think what's wonderful about this play is that because the essay is about something that is kind of universally human, we all on every side of the spectrum have dealt with the loss of a loved one. Most of us have dealt with suicide. And regardless of political affiliation, that human story and the idea of uh, the truth of a person's life versus the facts of their life is something that we all can wrestle with. And I think that this play does a really nice job of doing that. Wow. Yeah. And it's really funny. That's the other thing is that it's, it's interesting whenever you ask a, whenever I get asked to talk about a play as a director, my first question that I try to answer is the Manish Tanakh question, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. why this play, why yeah, now? Right, exactly, right. <laughs> and I think that that can lead you to the really pensive and intellectual places, the real rooting of the story of why it's important. And I think sometimes when we try to give something importance, we focus so hard on why it, why it matters and that it gets very dark. But actually, the other side of this is, the important thing of this is that we can talk about these things and we can laugh about them together. Yes. So I think that Lifespan of a Fact deals with this topic in a way that brings people together at the end because we are all seeing ourselves on stage in various different places <laughs> and laughing out of recognition because we've all had those conversations. Wow. My God. Well, <laughs> this is a very special and unique piece. This yes. one doesn't fit into any category. Yes, I very much agree with you. Yeah. It sort of defies genre in a lot of ways. Who chose this play, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose ultimately the person who chooses right. all of the plays in our season is always Michael. Right. So Michael Donald Edwards is the 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 buck stops there. <laughs> right. right. But you know, our, our literary team uh, and myself sort of came together and through our process of season selection, we're always looking for comedies. Oh yes. It's, you know, it's surprisingly hard to find them. I don't think it's surprising at all. <laughs> I think it's the hardest thing in the world. It really is. Yeah, I think um, for any number of reasons, but not the least of which is that everything is not funny to everybody. Yes. Oh, my God, that is so true. You know? And it's interesting because of our team, um, I had seen this play first because um, it ran on Broadway. Uh, with Dan Radcliffe playing Jim Fingal. Wow. And my fiancé, Adrian, is an enormous Harry Potter fan. <laughs> so we had to go. So we had to go. So regardless of what that play was going to be, Dan no. Radcliffe was in it, and so we were going to be there on first preview. Yes. So that was what we did. And I sort of walked into this thinking, not knowing anything about the play and sort of just being the dutiful spouse. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> um, and then I was sitting there and I was realizing about 20 minutes in that I was laughing harder than I had laughed at maybe the last six or seven plays that I had seen. Oh, my goodness. And so I sort of, I, I told my team, we need to get the script and you, you all need to see this because I, I thought this was really fun and really funny. And another thing that was striking me at the moment... Um, is that we've got an interesting setup in our office. We've got multiple different generations within one workspace. Wow. Consistently. Oh my goodness. It's wonderful. Um, consistently vibing off of each other and talking about not only art, but all of the connected topics that relate to art. So we end up talking about history, politics, science, morality, religion. 
all the time. This is wonderful. Technology, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm consistently getting multiple perspectives across a, a spectrum of different life experiences. And when I was listening to the play, one of the things that I thought we might be able to do in our own production is to embrace that aspect of it as well. So in the Broadway production, um, Jim is the youngest, and then the John DeGotta character is um, maybe I would say mid-40s, and then sort of the most senior uh, member of the ensemble is the editor, Emily, um, just in the way that they laid it out there. And one of the things that was interesting to me, because age isn't necessarily dictated in the script, is I wondered if we polarize uh, Jim and John a little bit more, if it would sort of highlight the different worldviews. Because I think I find when Michael and I sit down to have a conversation that we are coming from very different perspectives. And that's wonderful because we can, even when we're agreeing on something, we're coming at it from a a 180 degree different (laughs) angles. And I think that that's really fun. And seeing as Emily, um, the editor, is the person who's sort of in the middle, this person who's sort of being asked to hear these two vastly different perspectives and make a a decision on the way forward, make a decision on the way that she thinks, I thought that maybe putting her in the middle age-wise would be more interesting to really have John and Jim be a very different life experiences. So how old are they? So our Jim is 23. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The actor is 23. Um, And... I, you know, I haven't uh, asked Gene his exact age, <laughs> I see, right, right, right. <laughs> but he told me that he was around for Woodstock, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, right, right. It does date him. Yes, it, it does. Right. Um, but it's, it's been wonderful, too, um, to watch them play these different characters, to watch them have these debates in the room and really yeah. advocate for these different world perspectives, but also to watch them as actors become friends. I think it's lovely. They go golfing together <laughs> every week. And I think that's just such in a... In real life. In real life. They go golfing <laughs> together. They watch movies together. It's wonderful. Yeah, the shit up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, well, look what I've done. <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, so that, that, that is wonderful. <laughs> all right, so when does it open? When does it run? All that. We got a little while. Okay, good. So... It opens on uh, January 24th, is opening night. Mm -hmm. We have a preview on the 23rd and the 22nd. So we've got two previews and that opening night. And then we run clear into March. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, because we're we're in rotating rep with Murder on the Orient Express and then later into the breaches and the Great Leap. So I think it should be a really fun season for people to come and enjoy. Okay, so I have one more question, and um, and it is, having given really all of your life to, in one way or another, creating theater, hmm, is there anything you would say about what that's like? Well, I don't know that I can say that I've given all of my life to creating theater. Because? I spent um, a good portion of my life as a New York City paramedic. Oh, so, well, you left that part out, and I yeah, didn't know. <laughs> So I, um, well, how, when was that? In between Mumbai and and the New School? Yes. And well, I started I started training as a paramedic while I was an undergrad at NYU, 
And I was pre-med while I was there, and I was studying sciences simultaneously with getting my BFA. So (laughs) I started, I did my paramedic training at St. Vincent's Hospital, and the now deceased St. Vincent's Hospital. Wow. Um, And so that's, I had started working, and then um, I also worked as a paramedic when I came back from Mumbai. And it wasn't until recently, actually, that I left that behind for good. So you had the two tracks going pretty much simultaneously. Yeah, well, I'm a terrible waitress. So. <laughs> well, and, you're, and I suppose it's great to have a medic on the stage. You never know. Right? <laughs> God. <laughs> right? Not yet, huh? Well, mm-hmm. honestly, a, a lot of the skills transfer. Most of being a medic, along with being a good diagnostician and being able to follow protocols. And as yeah, a yeah, medic, yeah. you're starting IVs, intubating, um, handling a number of cardiac interventions as well, reading EKGs, et cetera. Um, it's really quite involved in New York, which was exciting and interesting. Um, but most of it is people management. The really. thing you've been doing since? The thing I've been doing since <laughs> I was little. So it's actually, it's actually not so different from directing. It's all problem solving and people management. Well, all right. Um, for the moment, can you separate out the the medical part of your life from the theater part of your life and talk to me about what you think you might want to say about all the time you have given to theater what that's like well it's um i suppose it's very nice that nobody dies at work anymore again knock on wood <laughs> and <laughs> no kidding you know it's yeah it's a great privilege to and i'm i'm always very cognizant of that it's a great privilege to be able to go to work every day in a controlled environment like a theater and work with fellow artists to tell stories. Yeah. I mean, I'm incredibly privileged. I get paid to play pretend. <laughs> it's almost like I never have to grow up, which is lovely, you know? And that's, I think because I did dedicate so much of my life to other pursuits, right. it's uh, particularly special to me to be able to do that now. It's a great place to stop. Thank you so much, Celine. Thank you.